0: It's good to be back with you again. It's been a while. We're going to be talking about hopelessness this morning. What is hopelessness? It's that adrenaline shot of fear and surprise that kind of bottoms out in a point of uncertainty a point of uncertainty that can go on for a long long time it's that which happens when everything is going smoothly you're encountering no problems you're happy and all of a sudden things just go all to pieces and you're saying what is going on Uh, and you're saying uh, God uh, it's time to move now Lord, I, I need a little help down here. Uh, God, I'm in over my head. Are you seeing all of this? Or, Lord, are you really there? You've experienced that hopelessness. Maybe you're going through it right now. <clears throat> what does it look like for you? What does it look like in your life? Rest assured when you go through it, if you're going through it now, that you are suffering the human experience. Today we're going to look at one of God's men. He too experienced uh, hopelessness. We're going to talk about what he experienced, how he coped with it, and what happened then. Maybe we can walk away this morning with just a few more tools for our belt that will help us with hopelessness when it hits us again. (coughs) Now, the year was 1974. I was a growing believer. (coughs) I guess I've been a believer for maybe a couple of years and started attending university. I was going to be a sociologist, a Christian sociologist, and was going to storm the world, correct all the problems, until I got to Sociology 101. We had a brand new professor, a new PhD, still had that new professor smell, you know? Um, You could tell that she was new because all of her lectures lectures came directly out of the textbook. But we still laboriously wrote them down. So one day, I I realized early on that somehow what I was learning about just didn't seem to gel with what was in the Scripture. And the more, as time went on, the begin I, the more I began to see, this is not what the Bible teaches. And as time progressed, I woke up one morning and looked in the mirror and said, I can't see you anymore if I don't speak up and say something in this class. So, didn't know exactly what I was going to do. The Professor came in that morning. She said good morning. We all wrote it down. Um, but she was talking, and she was she was more stuff out of sociology textbook. And on this particular day, she was talking about alternative lifestyles and so on. And I sat there and sat there until she said, "Now isn't this true, class?" And she said. Yes, I said, well, there is another way of looking at this. I said, oh. I said, well, the Bible says, and then I saw in her eyes, there was a little half smirk and kind of a condescending look that she gave me. And I felt at that moment so hopeless. I felt so scared so all alone. I was only 18 years old and this PhD was going to eat me for lunch. I wasn't sure exactly what to say. You know, um, as I looked into her eyes and she looked at me, I felt exactly how a mouse must feel when it looks into the eyes of a cat. I'll finish that story someday. Let's turn our attention to the Scripture. We're going to be looking at uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, we think the Bible is a book of miracles, and so it is. uh, We think about the works of providence, how God takes care of His creation here. When you consider the fact that... um, We live in a fallen world. We're suffering from progressive degeneration. We've got the second law of thermodynamics in motion. How does it all hold together as long as it has? It's God's act of providence. That's why things aren't totally chaos. That is sort of a miracle. But if you think about it, how can a person, the, the, the very salvation that we enjoy, when you consider a person that is dead in their sins... A person that is an enemy and hates God. A person that has been blinded by the God of this world, as Scripture says. When you consider that person can have their life turned around and come to love the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, that within itself is a miracle. The regeneration of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. But if we look at miracles in the technical and the narrow sense, we have to say that miracles the period of miracles occurred really about three times in the Scripture. It was during the time of Moses. It was during the time of Elijah and Elisha. It was during the time of Christ and in the early church. We're dealing with one such instance here this morning. We're dealing with Elijah, and let's take a look at the Scripture, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to be jumping into the context, but hopefully we can fill in the gaps. Now, this is a, regular, a, 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 a rather longish passage, so just bear with me. <clears throat> Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, "So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as one of the one of those by tomorrow, this time tomorrow." Then he was afraid, and he arose and he ran and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. The Mount of God. Then he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it too. Take it away And he said, that is God, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, you shall anoint Haziel. To be king over Syria. And Yehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat Shaphat of Abel-Mehoah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Yehu put to death. And the one who escapes the uh, the sword of Yehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I leave 7,000 in Israel all that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your word now. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would use it in our hearts. Lord, give us a tent of ears. Um, Lord, speak to us by the power of your spirit with your word. And Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified in this. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Elijah was hopeless. How do we know that? Well, I think we have a fundamental principle here. You've heard it before. What goes up must come down. What goes up must come down. And that's true with mountain, uh, mountaintop experiences with the Lord too. We have to go through the valleys as well. And you'd understand this better if we'd taken, and it would have been a longer reading, if we'd started about three chapters before. What had gone on with Elijah? We see that early on when God called Elijah, God told him to stop the rain, and he did so. And drought came into the land. And during that drought, God said to Elijah, he said, go, now note that word go, okay? Note that word go. Go to the Cherith Brook, and you're, you're going to have water there, and I'm going to be bringing food to you by birds, food and uh, meat and bread. Uh, we've all heard of uh, meals on wheels, how about meals on wings? And that's, what Eli- that's how he, he ate until the brook dried up. And at that point, God spoke to him again. Again, He said, "Go, Elijah. Go to the widow of Zarephath." And um, uh, he went there, and the widow was um, uh, getting ready to fix a meal. And she asked him for a cake or a loaf of bread. And she said, "Hey, I, all I've got here is enough for my son and me to have one meal. And after that, we're going to eat it, and then we'll die." And Elijah says, well, go and do that. But before you do it, make a loaf for me. Well, the woman, for whatever reason, exercised her faith, brought a loaf to Elijah. Now, Elijah did a miracle there. He made it, or he he, he caused her oil, her pot of oil, and her pot of flour, a meal, or whatever it was, to not go dry, to not run empty, as long as there was a famine in the land. And then when the widow's son died, the widow that he was staying with, when, she, when her son died, he raised him from the dead. And perhaps the, the uh, crescendo here was the showdown with the prophets of Baal at Mark, Mount Carmel. Uh, you know, uh, the prophets of Baal, and there were 450 of them, and uh, Elijah challenged them to a showdown. And he says, okay, let's make two altars. <clears throat> and the, the uh, prophets of Baal made their altar. They put the, the, the bull on it. And uh, they prayed and they chanted and they danced. And no fire came from heaven. And Elijah began to chide them. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Who knows? Where's your God? And, uh, and in the end, he said, all right, enough is enough. It's my turn. And he prepared the altar. He put the bowl on it. And after he laid it out, he had it drowned with water three times. So that the water was running off into the trough around the altar. And then Elijah prayed. Fire came from heaven. Took hide, hair, and all. Licked up the fire, licked up the rocks. Elijah turned to the Israelites and said, See those prophets of Baal? Sick them. So Elijah, after that, you know they're in a famine. He went to Ahab and said, Ahab, it's going to rain. And the rain started. And Elijah said to Ahab, you better get back to Jezreel. And Elijah himself outrun Ahab, who was in a chariot. So Elijah was on a roll. Man, things were really going great. So you can only imagine that when he thought that when uh, Ahab went into Jezebel, that she would surely fall on her knees in sackcloth and ashes. After all, look at all the victories that have been racked up so far. But it didn't happen. The exact opposite happened. And it just blew Elijah's pontoon out of the water. You know, hopelessness begins when we start looking at what's going on in our life, what's being done at the expense of keeping our eyes on the doer. Now, it starts out innocent enough. You've been given a task to do or a job to do or something like that, and you say, God, I just can't do this. God begins to enable you and say, "Um, well, God, we're doing this after all. Then you wind up saying, Hey, God, look at me. I can do it. We start to look at what we're doing or what's being done and take our eyes off the doer. We begin to measure God's love by the success we experience in our lives, in our ministry, and what we're doing. And so. Elijah was hopeless. Well, which scriptures really tell us? can you see it? Let's look at nine verse four, uh, 9, excuse me, 19 verse four. It says, uh, "Well, he lay down to die and said, "It's enough, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's." That sounds like depression." And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. I find that interesting. Does anybody here like to sleep when you're depressed? okay so that 's one one way that we know. Another way is you look at nine verse nineteen verse ten uh, when when God queried him, he says what's he say he didn't he doesn't answer the question. He says, I've been very jealous for the God for the Lord the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets of sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And if you look on down in verse 14, you'll see that it's word for word what Elijah just said. You almost get the impression that during those 40 days of going through the wilderness that Elijah was just stewing, saying, boy, I hope the Lord asks me this. I'm going to be ready for him. Uh, And so Elijah was just really hopelessness. But you see, Elijah's problem here, I think, was basically one of idolatry. Elijah? Guilty of idolatry? Now think about it for just a minute. He had experienced success after success after success after success. And he began to predict. I mean, he knew what God was going to do, right? Uh Uh-uh. You see, Elijah tried to make God into the image that he expected he was going to be. But the Lion of Judah is not a tame lion. God is bound only by His character. And we don't know what God's going to do. We pray to it. But anybody that tells you God's going to do this, they need to check. You need to check them. Because we don't know what God is going to do. We know that God is going to be holy, righteous, just, and loving toward his people. But we don't know how he's going to work out in circumstances. We can pray. We can ask God, and we should. He's told us we should. The Jews themselves, they miss their Messiah. Because they, uh, they second-guessed God. They expected, they made Him into the image that they wanted Him to be. He was going to come riding in on a white horse instead of a lowly donkey. And so they missed their Messiah entirely. Well, how did God appear to Elijah? How did the creator of the universe, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and last The ultimate... How did he appear to Elijah? Not the way you'd expect. Not in that wind that tore the rocks to pieces. Not in the earthquake that shook the ground. Not in the fire. But in a gentle whisper. Who would have expected God to show up like that? So Elijah, yeah... He was hopeless. He was really guilty of idolatry because he second-guessed God. Do you ever do that? Sometimes I do. Well, how, how was that hopelessness actually manifested? First of all, Elijah says, I'm all alone. Well, we know that's not true. If you look back a few chapters before, we see him coming up to old Obadiah. You know who Obadiah is. And um, Obadiah says, look, I've saved a hundred prophets here. I've got 50 in this cave and I've got 50 in this cave. And nobody, the powers that be don't know about them, but they're safe. And I'm making sure they get fed and watered and so forth. <clears throat> so Elijah already knew this. But you see, he was going by what he could see. And not what he was told. He was believing only what was there before his eyes. It says, I alone am left. Anybody that has worked with kids knows A.A. A. Milne, and you know Winnie the Pooh. But do you know the Tigger song? I'm not going to sing it, but the words go something like, the most wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops are made out of rubber. Their bottoms are made out of springs. And it, it, and it ends up and says, but the most wonderful thing about Tiggers is I'm the only one. Now, it's great if you're a Tigger. It's not so great if you're a Christian. You see, we were designed to work within a group here. You were designed to function within this body. You weren't designed to be on your own, alone, for extended periods of time. you need other Christians around. Uh, the scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man's countenance sharpens another. Uh, in First Peter 4:10 we're told, "As each of you have received a gift, use it for one another as good stewards of God's very grace. You know, we're in this together. We're helping each other. We pick each other up when we fall down. We, we are picked up when we fall down. We challenge, we exhort, we encourage. We love, we, 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 uh, we comfort, we're here for each other. But the reality of it is, sometimes we don't have our friends around. Or even worse yet, maybe you have your friends around and they disagree with you. Sometimes we do feel all alone. God made us to function with other believers but what happens when they, when they just ain't there? What do we do then? Well, we resort to plan B, which is still underlying and a part of plan A. It still has to be there. First of all, uh, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Paul writes, says, Have no anxiety about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God which passes all insight or understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We always have prayer. We should be using prayer from the beginning. It's nice to have people around, but when, when they're not there, we always have prayer. We should never under, underrate that by any means. Now, notice in that promise that God didn't say that He was going to take the problem away. He said that uh, He would give you peace through the problem, didn't He? <clears throat> So we've got prayer, but also we have God's sure word. We have his promises. And God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Still, in normal situations, we're designed to need each other. And it's discouraging when you feel all alone. But, you know, usually we're not as alone as we think as we're going to see here as we draw near to the end of this chapter, God always has His people there somewhere. Well, that was one way that hopelessness was manifested, by Him feeling all alone. But a second way was He felt that He just couldn't do it anymore. Lord, I'm at the end of my tether. I just can't manage it now. Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. When have you felt that you just couldn't go on anymore, that's it. It's over. We'll stop. I'm going home. I'm taking my toys. I just can't do this anymore. God has promised us in 1 Corinthians 10.13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and He won't let you be tempted beyond your strength. But with that temptation, He's going to give you an escape that you might be able to endure it. God will never put upon us more than we can bear. We just think that He does sometimes. Uh, I think back to a time before my 40th birthday my mother had had surgery she had had part of her lung removed she had had cancer and things had gone well with the surgery but she developed post-operative complications and all week long i watched her steadily go downhill as i prayed prayed lord please don't let her die please don't let her die but she did and you know at the end of that week after the funeral. I told my wife, I said, i I'm rung out. I just want to get away, don't particularly want to see anybody, just want to do something mindless. So we decided we were going to take our daughters to see a movie at the Bristol Mall. Lo and behold, there, as we were in line getting tickets, I saw my friend William that I hadn 't seen for years, a Native American Christian that I'd roomed with, we'd had Bible studies together going on evangelism together, uh, as one time as close as brothers. Well, we were brothers. But I saw him across the mall, and he caught my at the same time, and he waved like this, and I waved back like this, saying, "Oh God, not now, please." <laughs> I, I can't handle this right now. Lord, I don't want to see anybody. But He came over. And you know, God used that time. I thought it was going to be disastrous. But we were able to encourage each other. It's the first time we'd seen each other in so long. And get caught up. And share one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. And... We never know what we can take, but God knows when we're at the end. He provides that way of escape. God told the Apostle Paul when he was praying about his thorn in the flesh, he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. And so we endured. You know, I'm no psychologist, but uh, there's a few things we can learn, I think, from the Word. If you're feeling really down in the dumps, like you just can't go on, you want to know something that that can help you? Find somebody worse off than you are. Proof text, Isaiah 58, verse 10. It says If you pour yourself out to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will be like midday. Isn't that some promise? You're down in the dumps, you want, to, you want to do something about it? Go help somebody out that needs it. But God wants us to go on. If He wants us to go on, we can do it. You know, even these rocks that we step on along the way, these thorns that we get in our feet as we're walking the Christian life, these trials, these bad things that happen... God uses them. He's promised that He would in Romans eight twenty eight. He's using them somehow for our good. And the very fact that we question God and say, you just don't know what you're doing. Well, again, we're making an idol. We're trying to make God into who we are. Uh, we, we have to recognize that God is God and we're not. It's kind of that simple, and understand that God is wiser, and He understands us and loves us more than we can ever, ever imagine. So, Elijah felt like then that uh, that he was all alone. He felt like that he just couldn't do it anymore. But there was one other thing: Elijah's road ahead of him seemed unclear. Have you ever felt that way? you just just sort of caught between the devil and the deep blue sea, and you don't know where to go, what to do. And uh, you, you're saying, okay, Lord, what, what am I supposed to do here? Well, let's go back to Elijah for just a minute. You remember that I made a point of saying that Elijah was told to go to the brook of Cherith, you remember? To get, to get the bread and meat from the raven to live there? You remember I told you that he was told to go to the widow of Zarephath where he stayed and he helped the widow out by providing for her? Where do you see that Elijah was told to run into the wilderness there? He wasn't. I don't see it in Scripture. And so that's why God said to Elijah, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah didn't have an answer. He just had an excuse. You see how he justified himself? You know, they've, they've I I'll own them faithful. They've killed your prophets. They've, they're coming after me. What are you doing here, though, Elijah? And he didn't have an answer. You know, sometimes when we're not sure where we've got to go, it's best that we kind of do like the Israelites did in the wilderness. We stay put until that cloud begins to move. We stay put until the Lord gives you an assurance that you should move in a particular way. I've been in situations where I said, Lord... I've not been sure about this, but all the indicators seem to show me that you want me to go in this direction. And so, Lord, on the basis of that, I'm trying to be open to your leading, but I'm stepping in this direction. Now, I pray, Lord, that that's not the way you want me to go, that you'll just slam that door immediately. It's worked for me more often than not. You know, the Scripture says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Sometimes we just don't know where to go. You know, there was a time whenever I was a ruling elder at the church, and I was in... Um, Westminster Presbytery, which a lot of that's mountainous. But um, we had our Presbytery meeting in a place called Birchleaf, Virginia, one quarter. Now, Birchleaf was so far back up in the mountains, they had to pipe in the sunshine. And, um, and we had no trouble getting there. <clears throat> it was a beautiful drive. It was a fall day. The trees were glorious. And uh, the um, driver, the other ruling elder who, who was driving, had a convertible. So on the way back, we thought, hey, we could go the quick way or we could go the scenic way. And we decided to go the scenic way. But you know what? We, we didn't know exactly how to get there. And we didn't have a map. And that was days before GPS and cell phones and that sort of thing. But we knew how to start. We knew the first road we needed to get on. But we felt pretty confident that we could find our way back. And guess what? When we'd gone as far as we should on this road, we saw a sign that said so-and-so this way. And we knew we had to go that way, so we followed that road until we got to another sign that said this way. And so we found our way home, but you know what? We really enjoyed the trip, even though we weren't exactly sure where we were going. Sometimes we take trying to figure out the future just too seriously, I tell you. There have been times that I thought I would like to have a blueprint of my life. But if I did, if God granted me that, I can tell you this. You know what I would see? I wouldn't see the blessings on it. I'd just see the catastrophes. So God doesn't give us more than we need till we need it. And so it is. We take one step at a time. And um, with Elijah... You know, he's there in the wilderness. When God said, go, he went. We'll talk about that in a moment. At the proper time, God reveals his plan, but he reveals it usually, often, one step at a time. You know, uh, we have an obligation to try to plan. The Scripture says, man makes the plans, but God directs the steps. How much flexibility do you have in your planning that you're going to let God weave it and work it and mold it the way he wants to? Uh, you know, Isaiah 40:31 31 tells us, But they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. And they'll walk and not faint. So, talk about Elijah here. Uh, Elijah just felt all alone. He felt like he couldn't take it anymore. He was clueless as to the path he was supposed to go on. How was this? How is this hopeless rem, hopelessness remedied? Well, Elijah sought God first of all. Uh, if we look back at the text, we see that well, Elijah went to the front of the cave. To hear God. He sought Him out. He knew that God was going to be there. He sought Him out. And by the way, where was God again? He wasn't in the rock, or in, in the, he wasn't in the fire, he wasn't in the earthquake, he wasn't in the wind, but he was in the soft, still whisper. The very last place that you might expect the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, creator of the universe to be. That's where he was. But the Lion of Judah is not a tame lion. We can't second-guess Him. Well, so Elijah sought God. Now, how do we seek God? We have His Word. We have this right here. You know, I had to uh, unpack my office and bring it home um, some while ago from Mocahum Ministry Center. And I marveled at the number of Bibles that I have. King James, New King James, ESV, RSV, uh, you name it, New International Version, Living Bibles, Good News. And I thought, if I really understood what I had here, every one of those Bibles would be worn out. I would be seeking the Lord more through His Word. I would be wanting to know what He had to say. And if I did that... I think that I would have much less difficulty with feeling hopeless at times. But, you know, it's so much easier to just go and turn on the TV. It's so much easier to just spend time with your friends. It's so much easier to just go out to eat and forget your troubles. And I'm convinced that sometimes we really don't want a solution. All we want is an anesthetic. Sometimes we don't want the radical surgery. We just want a pain pill. We want a short-term fix. Because we don't want to deal with the living God. But we too, like Elijah, must seek God in times of hopelessness. Remember the Lord Jesus said, If you abide in me, and my word abides in you, and if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. So, Elijah sought God. But here's another thing too. When God said go, Elijah went. He was obedient. We don't see any indication from Scripture that he had any second thoughts. Uh, And when Elijah had complained, God didn't ask him, let's say let's go out to coffee and we can talk about it, or turn over Elijah and I'll rub your tummy for a few minutes and it'll be okay. He didn't say any of that. Now God... Like Elijah, like He gave Elijah commands, God has given us commands too. How we're to live our lives, how we're to worship Him, how we're to treat each other. Do we live up to it? No, we don't. That's why we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And yet we're called to that. You think, well, maybe it's, it's, it's just too hard. I just can't do it. You know, the most miserable people that I know of in the world are not those who try and fail, but those who just don't try because they don't want to fail. They don't want to take that chance. But there's a third thing here. A cure or a help for hopelessness. Realize that you're really not alone. You know... Elijah, if he was honest, he already knew about those hundred prophets in the caves back there. But God said to him, I've reserved a remnant of 7,000 that haven't kissed Baal. They're there, you just don't see them. Now, you need people to support you? Look to your left. Look to your right. These are your brothers and sisters. These are the ones that that keep you from being alone. Well, let's summarize where we've been. Elijah experienced the depths of despair after a mountaintop experience. He, he have you ever been like that? He was hopeless. He was down in the dumps before he ever knew what happened. We're not that different from Elijah. Our Christian life is not going to be a pony ride in the May sunshine. It's just not that way. Now, hopelessness, when it hits us, it can have many faces. We've looked at three... Uh, here this morning. But its root is idolatry and second-guessing God. We're trying to put God in a box and make Him into the way that we expect He's supposed to act. But it shows itself in at least three ways. It shows itself when we feel all alone, when we feel that we can't go on, and when we don't know where to turn. Is there a solution? I think so from Scripture here. Hopelessness can be remedied by, first of all, seeking God, getting into His Word, listening to preaching, getting scriptural counsel from people. Uh, It can be helped by being obedient to what you know to be His revealed will. You know, misery comes from disobeying God. And thirdly, we have to recognize that no matter how alone we feel, we're really not. We're really not. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you now and we thank you, Lord, that you're even the God of the hopeless. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to stay that way. Lord, we look at the life of Elijah and we ask, Father, that, uh, that you would help us learn these lessons. Lord, may we be a better example in times of crisis, in times of hopelessness. May we hold forth the Lord Jesus Christ, and be different from the world that's around us. Give us strength, Lord. We believe, help our unbelief. In Christ's name, amen.